Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. It's October, and as I said in last week's episode, this month the podcast will be focusing on horror and weird tales from and influenced by the pulps. In this episode, we have part one of The Thing of a Thousand Shapes by Otis Adelbert Klein. The story originally appeared in two parts in Weird Tales. It began in the March 1923 issue, the very first issue of the iconic pulp, and was included in the following issue. Klein was an assistant editor at the magazine and also provided stories. He later mostly abandoned his own writing to focus on his career as a literary agent, where he represented numerous writers. His most famous client was probably Robert E. Howard, a pioneer of the sword and sorcery genre and creator of Conan the Barbarian. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2019. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. And a reminder, if you'd like to support our efforts, you can find a link to all of our books in our entire online store on the website. And with that, on with the show. The Thing of a Thousand Shapes by Otis Adelbert Klein Uncle Jim was dead. I could scarcely believe it. But the little yellow missive, which had just been handed to me by the Western Union messenger boy, left no room for doubt. It was short and convincing. Come to Peoria at once. James Braddock dead of heart failure. Corbin and his attorneys. I should explain here that Uncle Jim, my mother's brother, was my only living near relative. Having lost both father and mother in the Iroquois Theater fire at the age of 12 years, I should have been forced to abandon my plans for a high school and commercial education, but for his noble generosity. In his hometown, he's believed to be comfortably well off, but I had learned not long since that it had meant a considerable sacrifice for him to furnish the $1,500 a year to put me through high school and business college, and I was glad when the time came for me to find employment and thus become independent of his bounty. My position as bookkeeper for a commission firm in South Water Street, while not particularly remunerative, it was provided a comfortable living, and I was happy in it until the message of his death came. I took the telegram to my employer, obtained a week's leave of absence, and was soon on the way to the Union Depot. All the way to Peoria, I thought about Uncle Jim. He was not old, only 45. When I had last seen him, he had seemed particularly hale and hearty. This sudden loss of my nearest and dearest friend was therefore almost unbelievable. I carried a leaden weight in my heart, and it seemed that the lump in my throat would choke me. Uncle Jim had lived on a 320-acre farm near Peoria. Being a bachelor, he had employed a housekeeper. The farm work was looked after by a family named Severe. Man, wife, and two sons, who lived in the tenant house, perhaps a thousand feet to the rear of the owner's residence, in convenient proximity to the barn, silos, and other farm buildings. As I have said, my uncle's neighbors believed him to be comfortably well off, but I knew the place was mortgaged to the limit, so the income from the fertile acres was practically absorbed by overhead expenses and interest. Had my uncle been a businessman in the true sense of the term, no doubt he could have been wealthy. But he was a scientist and dreamer, inclined to let the farm run itself while he devoted his time to study and research. His hobby was psychic phenomena. His thirst for more facts regarding the human mind was insatiable. In the pursuit of his favorite study, he had attended seances in this country and abroad at the leading spiritualists of the world. He was a member of the London Society for Psychic Research, as well as the American Society, and corresponded regularly with noted scientists, psychologists, and spiritualists. As an authority on psychic phenomena, he had 
contribute articles to leading scientific publications from time to time, and was the author of a dozen well-known books on the subject. Thus, grief-filled though I was, my mind kept presenting to me memory after memory of Uncle Jim's scientific attainments and scholarly life, while the rumbling car wheels left the miles behind, and the thought that such a man had been lost to me and to the world was almost unbearable. I arrived in Peoria shortly before midnight and was glad to find Joe Severe, son of my uncle's tenant, waiting for me with a fliver. After a five-mile ride in inky darkness over a rough road, we came to the farm. I was greeted at the door by the housekeeper, Mrs. Rhodes, and one of two men, nearby neighbors, who had kindly volunteered to set up with the corpse. The woman's eyes were red with weeping, and her tears flowed afresh as she led me to the room where my uncle's body lay in a gray casket. A dim kerosene lamp burned in one corner of the room, and after the silent watcher had greeted me with a hand clasp and a sad shake of the head, I walked up to view the remains of my dearest friend on earth. As I looked down on that noble, kindly face, the old lump, which had been for a time subsided, came back in my throat. I expected tears, heart-rendering sighs, but they did not come. I seemed dazed, bewildered. Suddenly, and apparently against my own reason, I heard myself saying aloud, "'He is not dead, only sleeping.' When the watchers looked at me in amazement, I repeated, Uncle Jim is not dead. He is only sleeping. Mrs. Rose looked compassionately at me, and by a meaning glance at the others said as plainly as she had spoken, His mind is affected. She and Mr. Newberry, the neighbor whom I had first met, gently led me from the room. I was, myself, dumbfounded at the words I had uttered, nor could I find a reason for them. My uncle was undoubtedly dead, at least as far as the physical world was concerned. There was nothing about the appearance of the pale, rigid corpse to indicate life, and he had, without doubt, been pronounced dead by a physician. Why, then, had he made this unusual, uncalled-for, in fact, ridiculous statement? I did not know. I concluded I must have been crazed with grief, beside myself for the moment. I had announced my intention to keep watch with Mr. Newberry and the other neighbor, Mr. Glitch, but was finally prevailed upon to go to my room, on the ground that my nerves were overwrought and I must have rest. It was decided, therefore, that the housekeeper, who had scarcely slept a wink the night before, and I should retire, while the two neighbors alternately kept two-hour watches, one sitting up while the other slept on a davenport near the fireplace. Mrs. Rhodes conducted me to my room. I quickly undressed, blew out the kerosene light, and got into bed. It was some time before I could compose myself for sleep, and I remember that just as I was dozing off, I seemed to hear my name pronounced as if someone were calling me from a great distance. Billy... And then, in the same faraway voice, Save me, Billy. I had slept for perhaps fifteen minutes when I awoke with a start. Either I was dreaming or something about the size and shape of a half-grown conger eel was creeping across my bed. For the moment I was frozen with horror as I perceived the white, nameless thing in the dim light from my window. With a convulsive movement, I threw the bedclothes from me, leaped to the floor, struck a match, and quickly lit the lamp. Then, taking my heavy walking stick in hand, I advanced on the bed. Moving the bedclothing cautiously with a stick and prodding here and there, I at length discovered that the thing was gone. The door was closed. There was no transom and the window was screened. I therefore concluded it must still be in the room. With this thought in mind, I carefully searched every inch of space, looking under and behind the furniture with that lamp in one hand and stick in the other. I then removed all the bedding, opened the dresser drawers, and found nothing. After completely satisfying myself that the animal I had seen or perhaps seemed to see, could not possibly be in the room, I decided I had been suffering from a nightmare and again retired. Because of my nervousness from the experience, I did not again blow out the light, but instead turned it low. After a half hour of restless turning and tossing, I succeeded in going to sleep, this time for possibly twenty minutes, when I was once more aroused. The same feeling of horror came over me as I distinctly heard a rolling, scraping sound beneath my bed. 
I kept perfectly still and waited while the sound went on. Something was apparently creeping underneath my bed, and it seemed to be moving toward the foot, slowly and laboriously. Stealthily, I sat up, leaned forward, and peered over the footboard. The sounds grew more distinct, and a white, round mass, which looked like a porcupine rolled into a ball with bristles projecting, emerged from under my bed. I uttered a choking cry of fright, and the thing disappeared before my eyes. Without waiting to search the room further, I leaped from the bed to the spot nearest the door, wrenched it open, and started on a run for the living room, attired only in pajamas. As I neared the room, however, part of my lost courage came back to me, and I slowed down to a walk. I reasoned that a precipitate entrance into the room would arouse the household, and that possibly, after all, I was only the victim of a second nightmare. I resolved, therefore, to say nothing to the watchers about my experience, but to tell them only that I was unable to sleep and had come down for company. Newberry met me at the door. Why, what's the matter? You look pale. Anything wrong? Nothing but a slight attack of indigestion. Couldn't sleep, so I came down for company. You should have brought a dressing gown or something. You may take hold. Oh, I feel quite comfortable enough. Newbury stirred the logs in the fireplace to a blaze, and we moved our chairs close to the flickering circle of warmth. The dim light was still burning in the corner of the room, and Glitch was snoring on the Davenport. Funny thing, said Newbury. The instructions your uncle left. Instructions? What instructions? Why, didn't you know? Oh, but of course you didn't. He left written instructions to Mrs. Rhodes that in case of a sudden death, his body was not to be embalmed, packed in ice, or preserved in any way, and that it was not to be buried under any consideration until decomposition had set in. He also ordered that no autopsy should be held until it had been definitely decided that putrefaction had taken place. Have these instructions been carried out? I asked. To the letter. And how long will it take for putrefaction to set in? The doctors say it will probably be noticed in 24 hours. I reflected on this strange order of my uncle's. It seemed to me that he must have feared being buried alive or something of the sort, and I recalled several instances of which I had heard where bodies, upon being exhumed, were found turned over in their coffins, while others had apparently torn their hair and clawed the lid in their efforts to escape from a living tomb. I was beginning to feel sleepy again and just started to doze when Newberry grasped my arm. Look! He exclaimed, pointing toward the body. I looked quickly and seemed to see something white for an instant near the nostrils. Did you see it? He asked breathlessly. See what? I replied, wishing to learn if he had seen the same thing I had. I saw something white, like a thick vapor, or filmy veil, come out of his nose. When I spoke to you, it seemed to jerk back. Didn't you see it? I thought I saw a white flash there when you spoke, but it must have been imagination. The time had now arrived for Glitch to watch, so my companion wakened him and they exchanged places. Newberry was soon asleep and Glitch, being a stoical German, said little. I presently became drowsy and was asleep in my chair in a short time. A cry from Glitch brought me to my feet. Wake up and help catch the cat! What cat? demanded Newberry, also awakening. Their big white cat! Just now he came the door through and jumped their coffin in! The three of us rushed to the coffin, but there was no sign of a cat, and everything seemed undisturbed. That's funny. Maybe it's hiding somewhere in the room. We searched the room without result. You've been seeing things, said Newberry. What did the animal look like, I asked. White and big as a dog. It come their door in so and gouged across their floor, so and jumped in their casket, just like that. It was a fierce-looking beast. Glitch was very much in earnest, and gesticulated rapidly as he described the appearance and movements of the feline. Perhaps I should have felt inclined to laugh had it not been from my own experience that night. 
I noticed, too, that Newberry's expression was anything but jocular. It was now nearly four o'clock, time for Newberry to watch, but Glitch protested that he could not sleep another wink, so three of us drew chairs up close to the fire. On each side of the fireplace was a large window. The shades were completely drawn, and the windows were draped with heavy lace curtains. Happening to look up at the window to the left, I noticed something of a mouse-gray color hanging near the top of one of the curtains. As I looked, I fancied I saw a slight movement, as of a wing being stretched a bit, then folded, and the thing took on the appearance of a large vampire bat hanging upside down. I called the attention of my companions to our singular visitor, and both saw it as plainly as I. How do you suppose he got in? asked Newberry. Funny if he didn't see him before, said Glitch. I picked up the fire tongs, and Newberry seized the poker. Creeping softly up to the curtain, I stood on tiptoe and reached up to seize the animal with the tongs. It was too quick for me, however, and fluttered out of my reach. There followed a chase around the room, which lasted several minutes. Seeing that it would be impossible for us to capture the creature by this method, we gave up the chase, whereupon it calmed down and suspended itself in the picture upside down. On seeing this glitch, who had taken a heavy book from the table, hurled it at our unwelcome visitor. His aim was good, and the thing uttered a squeak as it was crushed against the wall. At this moment, I thought I heard a moan from the direction of the casket, but could not be certain. Newberry and I rushed over to where the book had fallen, intent on dispatching the thing with poker and tongs, but only the book lay on the floor. The creature had completely disappeared. I picked up the book and noticed, as I did so, a grayish smear on the back cover. Taking this over to the light, we saw it had a soapy appearance. As we looked, the substance apparently became absorbed, either by the atmosphere or into the cloth cover of the book. There remained, however, a dry, white, faintly defined splotch on the book cover. What do you make of it? I asked them. Strange, said Newberry. I turned to Glitch and noticed for the first time that his eyes were wide with fear. He shook his head and cast furtive glances toward the casket. What do you think it is? I asked. A vampire, maybe. A real vampire. What do you mean by a real vampire? Glitch then described how in the folklore of his native land there were stories of corpses which lived on in the grave. It was believed the spirits of these corpses assumed the form of huge vampire bats at night and went about sucking the blood of living persons, with which they would return to the grave from time to time and nourish the corpse. This proceeding was kept up indefinitely unless the corpse were exhumed and a stake driven through the heart. He related in particular the story of a Hungarian named Arnold Paul, whose body was dug up after it had been buried forty days. It was found that his cheeks were flushed with blood and his hair, beard, and nails had grown in the grave. When the stake was driven through his heart, he had uttered a frightful shriek and a torrent of blood gushed from his mouth. This vampire story seized on my imagination in a peculiar way. I thought again of my uncle's strange request regarding the disposition of his body and of the strange apparitions I had seen. For the moment, I was a convert to the vampire theory. My better judgment, however, soon convinced me there could not be such a thing as a vampire, and even if there were, a man whose character had been so noble as that of my deceased uncle would most certainly never resort to such hideous and revolting practices. We sat together in silence as the first faint streaks of dawn showed in the east. A few minutes later, the welcome aroma of coffee and frying bacon greeted our nostrils, and Mrs. Rhodes came in to announce that breakfast was ready. After breakfast, my newly made friends departed for their homes, both assuring me that they would be glad to come and watch with me again that night. However, I read something the uneasy matter of Glitch, which led me to believe that I could not count on him, and I was therefore not greatly surprised when he telephoned me an hour later, stating that his wife was ill and he would not be able to come. Chapter 2 I strolled outdoors to enjoy a cigar, comforted by the rays of the morning sun after my night's experience. 
It was pleasant, I reflect, to be once more in the realm of the natural, to see the trees attired in the autumn foliage, to feel the rustle of fallen leaves underfoot, to fill my lungs with the spicy, invigorating October air. A gray squirrel scampered across my pathway, his cheek pouches bulging with acorns. A flock of blackbirds migrating southward stopped for a few moments in the trees above my head, chattering vociferously, then resumed their journey with a sudden whirr of wings and a few hoarse notes of farewell. It is but a step, I reflected, from the natural to the supernatural. This observation started a new line of thought. After all, could anything be supernatural above nature? Nature, according to my belief, was only another name for God. Eternal mind, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient ruler of the universe. If he were omnipotent, could anything take place contrary to his laws? Obviously not. The word supernatural was, after all, only an expression invented by man in his ignorance to define those things that he did not understand. Telegraphy, telephony, the phonograph, the moving picture, all would have been regarded with superstition by an age less advanced than ours. Man had only become familiar with the laws governing them in order to dispel the word supernatural as applied to their manifestations. What right, then, had I to term the phenomena which I just witnessed supernatural? I might call them supernormal, but to think of them as supernatural would be to believe the impossible, namely that that which is all-powerful had been overpowered. I resolved then and there that if further phenomena manifested themselves that night, I would, as far as were possible, curb my superstition and fear, regard them with the eye of a philosopher, and endeavor to learn their cause, which must necessarily be governed by natural law. A gray cloud of dust and the whirring of a motor announced the coming of an automobile. The next minute an ancient fliver, with whose bumps of eccentricity I had gained some acquaintance, turned onto the driveway and stopped beside me. Joe Severe, older son of my uncle's tenant, stepped out and came running toward me. Glitch's wife died this morning, he panted, and he swears Mr. Braddock is a vampire and sucked her blood. What rot, I replied. Nobody believes him, of course. I ain't so sure of that, said Joe. Some of the farmers are taking it mighty serious. One of the Langdon boys, first farm north of here, was took sick this morning. Doctor don't know what's the matter with him. Folks say it looks mighty queer. Mrs. Rhodes appeared on the front porch. A telephone call for you, sir. I hastened to the phone. A woman was speaking. This is Mrs. Newberry, she said. My husband is dreadfully ill and asked me to tell you that he cannot come to sit up with you tonight. I thanked the lady, offered my condolences, and tendered my sincere wishes for her husband's speedy recovery. This done, I wrote a note of sympathy to Mr. Glitch and dispatched Joe with it. Here, indeed, was a pretty situation. Glitch's wife dead. Newberry seriously ill, and the whole countryside frightened by this impossible vampire story. I knew it would be useless to ask any of the other neighbors to keep watch with me. Obviously, I was destined to face the terrors of the coming night alone. Was I equal to the task? Could my nerves, already unstrung by the previous night's experience, withstand the ordeal? I must confess, and not without a feeling of shame, that at this juncture I felt impelled to flee, anywhere, and leave my deceased uncle's affairs to shape themselves as they would. With this idea in mind, I repaired to my room and started to pack my grip. Something fell to the floor. It was my uncle's last letter, received only the day before the telegram arrived announcing his death. I hesitated, then picked it up and opened it. The last paragraph held my attention. And Billy, my boy, don't worry any more about the money I advanced you. It was, as you say, a considerable drain on my resources, but I gave it willingly, gladly, for the education of my sister's son. My only regret is I could not have done more. Affectionately, Uncle Jim. A flash of guilt came over me. The reproach of my conscience was keen and painful. I do not to commit a cowardly, dishonorable deed. Thank God for the accidental intervention of that letter. 
My resolution was firmly made now. I would see the thing through at all costs. The noble love, the generous self-sacrifice of my uncle should not go unrequited. I quickly unpacked my bag and walked downstairs. The rest of the day was uneventful, but the night, how I dreaded the coming of the night. As I stood on the porch and watched the last faint glow of sunset, lowly fading, I wished that I, like Joshua, might embrace the sun and moon to stand still. Twilight came on all too quickly, accelerated by a bank of heavy clouds which appeared on the western horizon, and darkness succeeded twilight with unwanted rapidity. I entered the house and trod the hallway leading to the living room with the same feeling, no doubt, that a convict experiences when entering the death cell. The housekeeper was just placing the lamp, freshly cleaned and filled. In the room, Joseph's younger brother Sam had placed logs in the fireplace with kindling and paper beneath them ready for lighting. Mrs. Rhodes bade me a kindly, Good night, sir, and departed noiselessly. At last the dreaded moment had arrived. I was alone with the nameless powers of darkness. I shuddered involuntarily. A damp chill pervaded the air, and I ignited the kindling beneath the logs in the fireplace. Then, drawing the shades to shut out the pitchy blackness of the night, I lighted my pipe and stood in the warm glow. Under the genial influence of pipe and warmth, my feeling of fear was temporarily dissipated. Taking a book from the library table, I settled down to read. It was called The Reality of Materialization Phenomena. It had been written by my uncle. The publishers were Balwer and Sons, New York and London. It was apparently a record of the observations made by my uncle and materialization seances in this country and Europe. Contrary to my usual custom on starting a book, I read the author's introduction. He began by expressing the wish that those who might read the work should first lay aside all prejudice and all preconceived ideas regarding the subject, which were not based on positive knowledge, then weigh the facts as he had found them before drawing a definite conclusion. The following passage in particular held my attention. While it is to be admitted, with regret, that there are many people calling themselves mediums who deceive their sitters nightly and whose productions are consequently more mere optical illusions, produced by chicanery and legerdemain. The writer has nevertheless gathered at the sitting, recorded in this book, where all possibility of fraud was excluded by rigorous examination and control, undeniable evidence that genuine materializations are and can be produced. The source and physical composition, if indeed it be physical, of a phantasm materialized by a true medium remains, up to the present time, inexplicable. That such manifestations are not hallucinations has been proved time and time again by taking photographs. One would indeed be compelled to strain his credulity to the utmost were he to believe that a mere hallucination could be photographed. As I have stated, the exact nature and source of the phenomenon are apparently inscrutable. However, it is a notable fact that the strongest manifestations take place when the medium is in a state of catalepsy or suspended animation. Her hands are cold, her body becomes rigid, her eyes, if open, appear to be fixed on space. A roll of thunder, quickly followed by a rush of wind, rudely interrupted my reading. The housekeeper appeared in the door, a lamp in hand. Would you mind helping me close the windows, sir? There's a big rainstorm coming, and they must be closed quickly, or the furnishings and wallpaper will be soaked. Together we ascended the stairs. I rushed from window to window, while she lighted the way with a dim lamp. This duty attended to, she again bade me good night, and I returned to the living room. As I entered, I glanced at the casket, and looked again while a feeling of horror crept over me. Either I was dreaming, or had been completely draped with a white sheet during my absence. I rubbed my eyes, pinched myself, and advanced to confirm the evidence of my eyesight by the sense of touch. As I extended my hand, the center of the sheet rose in a sharp peak, as if lifted by some invisible presence, and the entire fabric traveled upward toward the ceiling. I drew back with a cry of dread, watching it with perhaps the same fascination that is experienced by a doomed bird or animal 
looking to the eyes of a serpent that is about to devour it. The point touched the ceiling. There was a crash of thunder, accompanied by a blinding flash of lightning which illuminated the room through the sides of the ill-fitting window shades, and I found myself staring at the bare ceiling. Walking dazedly to the fireplace, I poked the logs until they blazed and then sat down to collect my thoughts. Torrents of rain were beating against the window panes. Thunder roared and lightning flashed incessantly. I took up my pipe and was about to light it when a strange sight interrupted me. Something round and flat, about six inches in diameter and of a grayish color, was moving along the floor from the casket toward the center of the room. I watched it, fascinated, while the blood seemed to congeal in my veins. It did not roll or slide along the floor, but seemed rather to flow forward. It reminded me more than anything else of an amoeba, one of those microscopic unicellular animals which I had examined in the study of zoology. An amoeba magnified perhaps several million diameters. I could plainly see it put forth projections resembling pseudopods from time to time, and again withdrew them quickly into the body mass. The lighted match burned my fingers and I dropped it on the hearth. In the meantime, the creature had reached the center of the room and stopped. A metamorphosis was now taking place before my eyes. To my surprise, I beheld, in the place of a magnified amoeba, a gigantic trilobite, larger, it is true, than any specimen which has ever been found, but nevertheless true to form in every detail. The trilobite, in turn, changed to a brilliantly hued starfish with active, wriggling tentacles. The starfish became a crab, and the crab a porpoise swimming about in the air as if it had been water. The porpoise then became a huge green lizard that crawled about the floor. Soon the lizard grew large, web wings, its tail shortened, its jaws lengthened, and its body seemed partially covered with scales of a rusty black color. I afterward learned that this was a phantasmic representation of a pterodactyl, or prehistoric flying reptile. To me, in my terrified condition, it looked like a creature from hell. The thing stood erect, stretched its wings, and beat the air as it to try them, then rose and circled twice about the room, flapping lazily like a heron, and once more alighted in the middle of the floor. It folded its wings carefully, and I noticed many new changes taking place. The scales were becoming feathers, the legs lengthened out and were encased in a thick, scaly skin. The claws thickened into two-toed feet like those of an ostrich. The head also looked ostrich-like, while the wings were shortened and feathered, but not plumed. The bird was much larger than the ostrich or emu I have ever seen, and stalked about majestically, its head nearly touching the ceiling. Soon it, too, stopped in the center of the room. The neck grew shorter and shorter. The feathers became fur. The wings lengthened into arms, which reached below the knee, and I was face to face with a huge, gorilla-like creature. It roared horribly, casting quick glances about the room, its deep-set eyes glowing like coals of fire. I felt that my end had come, but could make no move to escape. I wanted to get up and leap through the window, but my nerves, my limbs, would not function. As I looked, the fur on the creature turned to a thing covering a pair and began to assume a man-like form. I closed my eyes and shuddered. When I opened them a moment later, I beheld what might have been the missing link, half man, half beast. The face with its receding forehead and beetling brows was ape-like and yet man-like. Wrapped about its loins was a large tiger skin, and its right hand it branched a huge knotted club. Gradually, it became more manlike and less ape-like. The club changed to a spear, the spear to a sword, and I beheld a Roman soldier, fully dressed for battle with helmet, armor, target, and sandals. The Roman soldier became a knight, and the knight a musketeer. The musketeer became a colonial soldier. At that instant, there was a crash of glass, and the branch of a tree projected through the window on the right of the fireplace. The shade flew up with a snap, and the soldier disappeared as a brilliant flash of lightning illuminated the room. I rushed to the window and saw the overhanging limb of an elm had been broken off by the wind and hurled through the glass. The rain was coming in in torrents. The housekeeper, who had heard the noise, appeared in the doorway. Seeing the rain blowing in at the window, she left and returned a moment later with a hammer, tacks, and a folded sheet. I tucked the sheet to the window, framed with difficulty, on account of the strong wind and again pulled down the shade. Mrs. Rhodes retired. 
I consulted my watch. It lacked just one minute of midnight. Only half of the night gone. Would I be strong enough to endure the other half? And that is the end of part one. Please come back and join us again next week. And we will have part two, the conclusion of The Thing of a Thousand Shapes by Otis Adelbert Klein. And that's all for today. Thanks for listening. And just a reminder that if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production. We'll be back with a new episode next week.